Support for this podcast and the following message come from Coriant. Coriant provides wealth management services centered around you. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Coriant has experienced teams who can craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex. Real wealth requires real solutions. Connect with a wealth advisor today at Coriant.com. That's Coriant.com. Hello, and welcome to the Rachman Review. I'm Gideon Rachman, Chief Foreign Affairs Commentator of the Financial Times. In this week's podcast, we're looking at the surge in coronavirus cases in India and the global ramifications. My guest is Dr. Abra Karan of Harvard Medical School. He's been involved in combating the pandemic, both as a practicing physician and as a commentator on global health. He's originally from India, travels frequently to the country, and has worked there as a healthcare professional. So, what do events in India tell us about the course of the pandemic? The surge in coronavirus cases in India took the government by surprise. Earlier this month, Narendra Modi, the country's prime minister, was speaking to mass rallies ahead of a vital regional election in West Bengal. Modi said he was elated to see a large crowd. But even as he spoke, COVID-19 deaths were rising sharply around the country. Now, normal political life in India is suspended as the country battles a health emergency that's left hospitals overwhelmed and many gravely ill patients unable to get the treatment they need. We as a doctor, we as a hospital, we are supposed to give life. If if we cannot give them oxygen even, what is the situation? When a patient comes to a patient, will die. Patient, Patient will die. In Delhi, funeral pyres are burning, not just in crematoriums, but even in city parks and parking lots. The initial reaction of the US government to appeals for help from India was cool. A State Department spokesman suggested that when it came to vaccines, the policy was still America first. The United States, first and foremost, uh, is engaged in an ambitious and effective and so far successful effort uh, to vaccinate uh, the American people. But as the gravity of the situation has sunk in, the US and other governments around the world have changed course and started to make concerted efforts to get help to India. With regard to India, I spoke at length with Modi, the Prime Minister. We are sending immediately a whole series of help that he needs. The fear, however, is that this help will arrive too late to stop the unfolding tragedy. And this is not just a problem for India. The spike in cases has raised fears that the pandemic may now take a new and dangerous course around the world. So when I got Dr. Abra Karan on the line, I started by asking him to place the current surge in India in context. The pandemic began over a year ago. How big a development is this? Well, I think this is an immense development. And you can quantify it just by saying, look at India, right? India set the global record for total number of new cases each day was over 352,000 infections. That in itself just speaks volumes. For a lot of people in the U.S. now, uh, it was starting to feel like we turned a corner 
and in other parts of the world where COVID had already been controlled, including in, in India, right? In February in India, they're registering like 11,000 new cases and they'd really started to bring it down. People were hypothesizing about what India may have done right to get it under control. To now see this catastrophic surge that is literally overwhelming and overthrowing uh, the healthcare system there, it really is a wake-up call for everybody around the globe. Yeah. It must be grueling for you and upsetting to, to be following what's going on. What are you hearing from the country and do you think it's going to be able to cope? Yeah, I mean, I just spoke with my grand aunt over there and she's in the hospital. She's a retired physician and she said that the situation is just terrible. Even her, who has connections within the healthcare system, had a hard time getting a hospital bed she eventually did get one. That just says to me, if she had a hard time getting a bed, I can only imagine people who are not connected within the healthcare system, what's going to happen to them. I see all over social media, a lot of my close friends saying, please pray for my relatives um, who are sick. And frankly, I mean, I was just speaking with my cousin and asking him, what do you think locally needs to be done? Because, you know, I can sort of posit from here what needs to happen and, and what theoretically could be, but I wanted to get his local perspective he said, you know, we need more people wearing better personal protection. He said a lot of people are wearing just handkerchiefs and not actual masks. He said that the hospitals are completely overwhelmed. And at this time, it, it sort of feels like things are just going to play their course. And there's feels like there's not much that can be done. We felt something like that at times here in the Northeast earlier on, right? There is New York City. We felt that at times here in Boston. A lot of my colleagues in L.A. County were suffering that same way in December, and so globally, we're suffering similar experiences. Yes, the scale of it's much greater in India now than it was even in the U.S. But, uh, you know, it's just it's really triggering for me as a healthcare professional seeing some of the videos coming out of there. It must be extremely difficult being on the other side of the world having to watch that. Now, uh, you've worked as a physician on COVID, also as a global health specialist. Were you taken by surprise by this? You know, I think that just seeing the way in which this had happened in different times and different points in the epidemic, even last year, for instance, right? India did not have really its first major surge till September, where it was registering 90,000 new cases. That was still months after the United States was first hit in the spring. And early on, there was a lot of speculation that wealthy countries were going to do really well and um, middle income or low income countries were not going to do well. And yet we saw in India and Sub-Saharan Africa, actually, they were not hit that hard. And so for a lot of last year, the surprise was perhaps that the United States, Europe, uh, UK was hit extremely hard and did poorly, whereas India and Sub-Saharan Africa and other places, Southeast Asian countries did well. With that being said, I think that the virus is as it is. It has inherent transmission dynamics. And you know that if you have a large susceptible population, that with exponential spread, it's just a matter of time before a very densely populated place that has not been vaccinated has a catastrophic surge. So I think that for a lot of places, it's a matter of when, not if. So does that suggest, talking to friends who specialize in Africa, I know they've been very alarmed watching what's going on in India because, again, they've also had the sense, well, maybe Africa isn't going to be as hit as badly as some had feared. And now I think they're thinking... Maybe we're next in line for this. I mean, I think that's a realistic concern, right? Because, you know, some of the speculation around India not being hit as hard as people thought it would be 
in January was perhaps there is more immunity than we previously expected. There was some Sarah surveillance that suggested one in five Indians had been exposed as of January. And now we're seeing that actually with B117 variant, the B1617 variant, that there is a catastrophic surge again, right? And you would not expect that if you really had truly had places that hit so-called herd immunity threshold earlier on. And so this will be a problem, um, particularly because we know with globalization that these variants are everywhere. It's just a matter of if they've been detected yet. And some of them are more transmissible, some of them are more severe, and could really be game changers in countries that have not yet been hit that hard. Obviously, it's it's, uh, early in the process. This surge has really only hit the global headlines in the last few days. But there's, uh, of course, already people trying to figure out what went wrong in terms of public policy. Does it seem that the Modi government made policy errors, that this could have been avoidable? I mean, there's been a lot of focus on big public electoral rallies and so on. I think one of the things that jumps out now is that even as spread had started to happen at a sort of concerning level, there was still large political rallies being held. Modi was seen not wearing a mask on television at some of these rallies. You know, there was large uh, religious gatherings uh, bringing together millions of people. These were obvious situations that should have been avoided. India had been through a surge before. We are a year and a half into this pandemic. It should have been more than clear to avoid these high-risk, densely crowded settings. And we know that mask wearing and some of the non-pharmaceutical interventions had already started to peel back a little bit, as they have in many places. But the moment you start to see this surge, immediate action needs to be taken. And I think that wasn't done. So given the, the situation that India is in, what needs to be done now? Well, there's two critical parts, right? When you're surging at this level, one of them is to urgently curb transmission. The exponential spread means that each day is much worse than the day before, right? In terms of cases, and that quickly translates to deaths. As soon as your healthcare system is overwhelmed, um, your death rate will start to spike. As we're seeing in India, the number of deaths are going up. Uh, We're probably under detecting this by magnitude of five to 10. And so one thing is to urgently curb transmission. How do you do that? You can actually take examples from all over the world. So in Japan, they had the three C's, right? Avoiding crowding, close contact, um, and poorly ventilated spaces, closed spaces. And so that is one key. The other is personal protection. Personal protective equipment is something that myself and colleagues have been pushing heavily in the United States around the notion that if indeed COVID-19 is primarily transmitted by short-range aerosols, that cloth masks are not going to be doing nearly as much as you need them to. And so getting people medical grade masks, including high filtration masks, is critical. And that's something, it's a very low hanging fruit. You can do that much more quickly than you can vaccinate. Thirdly, it's very difficult to vaccinate your way out of a surge, right? Because even when you get vaccinated, it takes about two weeks from your final dose to really reach that level of immunity. While vaccinating is critical, that's not going to be your silver bullet out of a epidemic surge. And so better masking, avoiding high risk scenarios, And the last part I'd talk about is a circuit breaker-like event. And when we say that, we mean a lockdown by which you have to anticipate the external harms. India has a large informal sector, very poor, a lot of people at the poverty line who won't be able to manage the shocks of a lockdown, right? They depend on food and uh, shelter and income on a daily level, where there's very few savings for some of these families. 
And so you need to have the government provide that basic support, such as food security, if you indeed do a circuit breaker event. So you do think, though, that a lockdown is feasible in India because, again, I mean, as, as you've alluded to, I mean, in India and even in Brazil, people have argued, President Bolsonaro, for example, that you can't do a lockdown in a country where not enough people have savings. As with everything, right, it's cost benefit. You're either stuck with ongoing exponential transmission, uh, which is collapsing your healthcare system, or you impose a lockdown, which is surely going to have uh, drastic effects on, on the poorest of the poor, unless you provide them with the social supports that they need. But even at baseline levels before COVID-19, if any, if you've ever worked in India, you know that a lot of these communities and a lot of those people in extreme poverty are already sitting in lives that are very unequal to begin with. And so it's going to be hard to solve some of those inequities in the middle of a catastrophic surge. So that's the, the situation in India. You were talking earlier, though, about this assumption in the developed world, in the US, where you are, in, in Europe, where I am, that the pandemic somehow will take a different form where we are. And I think that there is still, certainly in the UK, a sense that what's happening in India is horrifying, but not necessarily a threat to Britain because we're quite well ahead with our vaccination campaign. And if we, you know, shut down flights, make people quarantine from India, you know, maybe it's not a threat to the rich world. I think you're sceptical about that, though. I am. I, I think that it's not an unusual way of thinking, but I think that this, again, is the primary way of thinking that let us all be vulnerable globally to a pandemic as it was at the time when COVID first spread, right? Because it was sort of seen as a, a virus coming out of Wuhan. It was sort of assumed that, oh, because it's coming out of uh, China and not out of maybe Europe or the US, that that was the reason that it was poorly controlled or that it escaped which is not true, right? A lot of East Asian and Southeast Asian countries have a lot of experience dealing with SARS. They've dealt with a respiratory um, virus like this before. They have experience with contact tracing. Now, seeing the way that UK and the US response was, one could only wonder if this had started in Europe or the US, how much more it would have spread or when a global alert would have been implemented, etc. We really don't know, but the, the, the prior assumption that somehow wealthy countries are inherently better at dealing with infectious diseases was really flipped on its head with COVID. And now, though, what about this belief, maybe it's a hope, that, well, if you're well ahead with vaccination, you're probably less threatened by what's currently happening in India? I think it's true that, you know, the more you're vaccinated, uh, the more protected we'll be. And even with replication of the virus and uh, with certain strains gaining advantageous mutations with the spike protein that allow them to enter cells and replicate better, and also ones that allow them to evade the antibody response, that it's unlikely that they would gain a mutation that immediately renders our vaccines ineffective completely, right? It's more likely that it will be a gradual process over time. And so I do think that countries that are very well vaccinated have some level of protection now. With that being said, that mindset will again leave us vulnerable if we don't start to think of the pandemic as a pandemic. This affects everybody globally. And the more susceptible hosts you have, the more chance that the virus will replicate efficiently and effectively, the more chance it mutates. And I think for a lot of people, COVID has changed the way that we live. And frankly, having to deal with more dangerous epidemic and pandemic prone variants is not something anybody wants. Even if we're protected right now, what about next year? What about the year after? So... What do you think uh, the outside world should be doing? I mean, 
there does seem to be some effort now to mobilize, certainly in the United States. Uh, do you think the Americans, if we start with them, are doing the right things yet? I think that now there's been a shift. You know, earlier this week, uh, Jake Sullivan uh, from the U.S. national security side spoke with India's Ajit Doval. And there was even a thread on Twitter from Tim Manning, who's the U.S. supply coordinator, who really talked a little bit more about how the United States government was going to actually divert some of their vaccine filter orders towards India's manufacturing that could help with scaling up their vaccine manufacturing. U.S. is now sending um, PPE, oxygen, therapeutics, rapid diagnostic test kits to India. And, you know, the UK and Europe are also doing that. Russia is as well. So I think that countries are definitely moving in that direction, which is which is a good thing. You argued earlier, though, that, you know, vaccines, although they're very important, are not the immediate solution to, to what's happening, because by definition, it takes time. But there is now this sort of raging argument about patents, about intellectual property, and so on. And I know you, you have a sort of slightly different take on how the broader question of vaccines and getting vaccines to the whole world should be dealt with. So as many have been talking about, you have a number of problems when it comes to pharmaceuticals at a global level, vaccines at a global level. Liberalizing patents is necessary, but not sufficient. Some of the companies have said, you know what, we won't enforce these patent laws. Um, we'll allow others to make it. But the other companies and generic companies don't necessarily have the manufacturing know-how to do that. And so it's basically like saying, yes, here, I'll give you my boat, but I'm not going to give you the key to start it. And there's more to be done there. The technology transfers that are needed is another key part of this. And I've spoken with people in the pharmaceutical industry around vaccinations. And, you know, some of the technologies are complicated, right? The mRNA technology is a new technology that's really being used now. But with that being said, I think that there has to be an immense priority placed on getting that manufacturing know-how out to other companies so that we can actually vaccinate the world much more efficiently and effectively. I, I mean, there is something to be said for capitalism and the need for protecting um, innovation and, and driving innovation. But this is a really a once in a lifetime situation that's happening with this pandemic. And so I think at this time, the priority really needs to be towards health over wealth. But it seemed to me what you were suggesting, if I understood it correctly, in the British Medical Journal was in a way a sort of capitalist incentive for the producers, which is that the world should just spend a lot more on COVAX, the global drive to buy vaccines for the world. Yes, absolutely. So the BMJ, um, British Medical Journal article that you're referring to is a piece written by myself and Dr. Thomas Pogge at uh, Yale University. And Dr. Pogge has been one of the sort of leaders around this idea of the health impact fund. And the notion here is that there's really little market incentive for pharmaceutical industry to innovate medicines or vaccines or whatnot for the poor, because the amount of money that there is to be earned there may not be enough of a financial incentive for them to do it. With that being said, there's still immense health need in these places for these people. And so the, the idea behind something like the health impact fund would be to actually create a fund that is through some percent of GDP of wealthy nations that can then pay out pharmaceutical companies for creating drugs or vaccines that primarily have a health benefit. And so you may think about that in terms of how you may apply it here. Some of the later vaccines that may not have as much of a demand in wealthier countries would perhaps benefit in a system whereby which they're paid out through a fund like this. Now, this would be hard to do in a short amount of time. So in our article, we say right now, because COVAX essentially exists already to do something somewhat similar, that we would increase funding immensely to COVAX. 
Now, actually, the point about COVAX and the, what's going on in India is a, is a critical one because Indian manufacturing actually is supposed to be supplying a, a number of doses to sub-Saharan Africa through COVAX. And so India is not able to do that right now because they're dealing with their own catastrophe. And so it just shows you how interconnected we all are. More broadly, obviously, we're in the middle of an unprecedented global health crisis. What do you think we've learned about how the global health system operates? I mean, there's a lot of big takeaways. For those of us that have been working in global health already, we've been well aware that actually a lot of global problems are very much solved at the local level. And anything that moves away from the local level and in, imposes sort of top-down infrastructures from people in wealthy countries trying to, quote-unquote, do good for people in poorer countries and impoverished places, frankly, that's just not how problems get solved. And so when we see countries that have overcome Ebola outbreaks, when we see countries that have dealt with SARS in the past, there's a lot of institutional memory at the very local level. People have dealt with this before. They understand, right? So one of my colleagues flew to Rwanda earlier in the epidemic. And he said when he got to Rwanda, immediately he had his temperature checked. He had his address taken down. He had somebody calling him daily to check on if he had any symptoms. They knew exactly where he was staying. On the other hand, when he flew back to New York, he walked off the plane, no questions asked, and nobody asked where he went. Again, you've written about the global health system still reflecting what you call a kind of neo-colonial mindset. What do you mean by that? And do you think that's been reflected in the way this is being dealt with? Yeah, I mean, I think that the idea behind this sort of neocolonialism in modern day global health is that with colonialism, you had really an extraction of resources from colonized peoples. And even though some of those official colonial relationships may have ended when we had a decolonization period in the 20th century, a number of informal financial mechanisms still existed by which wealthy powers could control poorer countries. Structural adjustment grants were one of those, whereby which grants were given by World Bank and IMF to say that this money is intended only to do it the way we see fit. And in doing that, there was a lot of underdevelopment of sort of basic infrastructure that was needed. And then we see it sort of continuing on now, actually, even within the academic global health infrastructure, whereby American and European professors of global health they benefit based on research that's published, but not necessarily based on the health outcomes of the places that they're working in. And beyond that, as soon as COVID hit, a lot of American, European uh, global health practitioners were basically sent home, right? They quote unquote stayed home because when a real crisis hit, that was the safer option at an individual level is to sort of head back to wherever you were from. And people in local areas still had to stay there and keep doing what they were doing. And this reminds me of what some of my cousin had said. Uh, you know, I'm Indian of background. I was born in India. I go back there often. And my cousin told me once, he said, you know, a lot of the global health work that's done here is like an experience for Americans. But for me, it's just my day-to-day -day life. And that's the reality, right? That global health is fundamentally local. And if you're not locally going to be committed and staying there during crisis, then it calls up some hypocrisy. So Dr. Karan, if this pandemic ever is to end, and it has to at some point, what needs to happen? From my perspective, it's, it's both a philosophical question and then a question of how we're going to allocate resources. From a philosophical side, I think fundamentally we have to start to really see past borders and really feel fundamentally that the suffering of people in other places is our suffering too, that these are more than just people in other countries. These are fellow human beings. These are our neighbors. And what happens there will affect us undoubtedly. And I think when we fundamentally adopt that level of global solidarity as our sort of driving principle behind 
global health, then that is when we start to succeed. When we instead fall back on things like security um, for ourselves to say, okay, as long as we're safe, we don't really care about what's going on in other places, that driving principle is not going to lead us very far. In terms of how that plays out, I think it really plays out in terms of actual allocation of resources, right? So the inequity in vaccinations globally speaks volumes on this. The fact that some countries have not seen any vaccinations should be absolutely troubling to us. You know, some have actually ventured out to say that rather than trying to vaccinate every child in this country, maybe you ought to try to start vaccinating high-risk folks in other places. And I agree with that because fundamentally, the people that are vulnerable in the U.S., like elderly, those with multiple medical conditions, are also people that are vulnerable in other countries. And we need to prevent deaths globally, and we need to prevent surges globally. So I do think that we need to put our resources where our mouth is, even if we do change our philosophy, and actually make sure resources are allocated as well. Dr. Karan, that's a very good thought on which to end. Thank you very much indeed for joining us and for a very enlightening conversation. Thanks, Gideon. Really appreciate it. That was Dr. Bra Karan of Harvard Medical School, ending this week's edition of the Rachman Review. Thanks for listening. I hope you'll be able to join us again next week. You can find the show in all the usual podcast apps. Did you know the Capital Ideas podcast now has a new monthly edition hosted by Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin? Through the words and experiences of investment professionals, you'll discover who was their best mentor. What's a mistake they made that changed their approach? And how do they find their next great idea? Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Published by American Funds Distributors, Inc. The latest episode of The Next Five podcast is all about AI and the business travel sector. I speak to Tim LaBelle, head of product for SAP Concur Spend Solutions. We'll have so much data that our travel will be safer. Shelley fletcher Bryan, VP of Advito. AI can certainly contribute to more eco-friendly travel practices. And author and public speaker Theo Lau. AI can help us predict when it will be a peak travel, more delays, cancelled flights. Listen to the full episode of The Next Five wherever you get your podcasts. Enjoy.